Acts chapter 5. This morning and this evening we are going to look at, it's it's kind of like a two-part sermon. So the first part is this morning and then this evening we'll be going on into Acts chapter 17. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole of Acts chapter 5, but the first part of it is a story of a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. I'll say more about that in a moment. And then we read from verse 12. The apostles performed... Many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That was a part of the temple in Jerusalem. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. I want us to... uh, look at this. Um, There's a great deal in it, and I just want particularly to focus, I want to focus on the whole chapter, but particularly on this verse. In 1986, some of you weren't even thought of then, at least not by human beings. But uh, in 1986, Margaret Thatcher was uh, Prime Minister. Ronald Reagan was President. Somebody invented something on the internet, uh, a, a protocol, which was eventually to allow something called email to, to happen. There was a time when email did not exist. Uh, there was mad cow disease came to Britain. The top shows on television were only fools and horses and EastEnders. Uh, some things don't change all that much. Uh, myself and Annabelle, and we never do this. We never do this. I don't know why we did it. We did it last night, and one of you here came and found us uh, and caught us at it. Uh, and I better explain what it is before I get any further in trouble. We, um, we watched Top of the Pops Gold, or whatever it is, the old, and it was from the 1970s or whatever, and we were just thinking... We used to like this. We used to do this. We used to dress like this. The bell bottoms and everything else. Some of us, I'll explain what they were another time. And just, you think that's from another era, 1986. And yet, as I uh, reflect upon that, there's a reason for reflecting upon it. Because uh, on this day, uh, 25 years ago, I was ordained and inducted as a minister of Brora Free Church. And it just seems extraordinary to me that I've been married for 25 years for more than half my life and I've now been a minister for more than half my life. And they said it would never last. Well, I'm going to indulge and take two verses which are of huge importance uh, for me personally and I hope you will see how they still apply to all of us today. And the first is in 
in Acts chapter 5 and verse 20. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Well, it's really uh, difficult to explain how you get called to be a minister. It was my final year of university. I was studying history and politics, wondering what I was going to do. And I visited a church in a wee place called Balintor, which is a seaside village up in Easter Ross, where I'm from. And I was sitting in the church. I'd not all that long been a Christian. And the, I could hear the waves of the sea on the harbor wall outside. The church sang psalms. They were singing a psalm. The minister preaching, I can't remember a thing of what he said, which is probably not unusual. But these words in the passage that he read stuck out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And I knew for me that that was it. The, the whole of my life was to be committed to communicating the full message of this new life. And so, after training at the Free Church College, age 24, I became the youngest minister in the Free Church. Um, I, in those days, times had, I'd say, had changed. I had hair. Um, I had a motorbike. I, had, uh, I didn't have a belly. Well, not a massive one. And uh, it was, and I was, yes, I was incredibly thin and fit. Uh, long, long time ago. Well, not that long, says Elizabeth. It's just, it's not that long. I want to share with you some lessons that come from that and from uh, God's word, because the focus is absolutely surely on God's word. I want us to consider, first of all, the background to this text. It was a different culture. Just as the 1970s or the 1980s is a different culture for many people, seems a different world. So this culture, the uh, Middle East in the first century, seems incredibly different. But the word of God is applicable in every single culture. I've preached over 2,500 sermons, had thousands of conversations written hundreds of articles, had many setbacks and disappointments, done many, many things that are wrong. And yet there are some basic lessons that I think that we can apply. Uh, Alistair Ross, my minister in Edinburgh, when I asked about becoming a minister, uh, my objection was that I was too young. And he said, that's true, David. But just think, by the time you're 50, and I'm not quite there yet, he said, you will have 25 years of pastoral experience and he said, that will be worth its weight in gold. So let me share some of that uh, with you from God's word. Some of the lessons that we can take. And the first is simply this. The word of God is never irrelevant. One of my favorite preachers, Eric Alexander, visited the church here several times. And he lived across in St. Andrews for a while. And I went over to see him once. And he said, David, I'm going to give you some advice. And my advice is this, as people start coming to the church, you'll be put under enormous pressure to water down communicating the word of God. And it's Christians who will put you under that kind of pressure. And he said, don't give in to it. Don't give in for the sake of cheap popularity. I think we are very, I think those were wise, wise words. I think we are very easily distracted from the word of God. There has been an enormous change in the evangelical church and amongst young people who come to study at university. 
I've been involved with Christian unions for almost all of those 25 years, and it's my view that in general, though it's not always the case, that students are coming to university less well-equipped in the Word. And that's not their fault. It's the churches, largely. We've sidelined sometimes the Word. We know the Word is important. We know the Bible is important. But we've not taught it with authority, and we've not relied on the Holy Spirit to apply it. And so we've been sidetracked into many different things. We often struggle, most of us, We'll struggle to, we think we're doing really good if we go to a one-hour service once a week. I remember as a young man before I came to university listening to Douglas Horn in the Church of Scotland in Tain and thinking just how stunning and how marvelous it is that God speaks to us. And that is the thrill that still applies today. The Bible is as fresh and as relevant to me as, as it was 25 years ago, and perhaps I could even say fresher. Martin Luther says, if you're tired of the word of God, you are tired of life. And some of us, sadly as Christians, have become tired of the word of God. In the context of this chapter, this is first century Israel. The Roman Empire is dominant. The Greek language is spoken all over the Mediterranean. And Jesus has come. And from age 30, Jesus taught He performed miracles. He raised the dead. He was welcomed as the Messiah into Jerusalem. And the very people who welcomed him combined with the religious leaders and the Roman authorities to crucify him. He was then raised from the dead, the greatest miracle of all, declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts is the record of how the church was born and how the church grew and developed. And this is the church that we belong to today, the New Testament church, the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the second lesson that I I want us to learn and that I have learned over the years is that the gates of hell do not prevail against the church of Christ. There are many things that are wrong with the church. There are many things that cause us to get really, really, really frustrated But Christians need to realize how beautiful the church is as well. I'm talking about the New Testament church, the church of Jesus Christ. It is one of the most frustrating things to be involved in pastoral ministry and to continually hear from Christians complaints and moans moans against the church. Usually not against God, because we're a little bit too smart for that. But we complain against the church, and really it often ends up being a complaint against God. People come out with cliches like, I love Jesus, it's the church I can't stand. I uh, have been involved in correspondence with a man who has a huge following in the United States, and God has told him not to go to church, but to be the church, which is actually correct. But what is not correct is he doesn't meet with other believers, except those he has around to his house and irregular fellowships and all that kind of stuff, as he calls it. And he keeps coming up with these pietistic cliches about Jesus, and We as Christians, we buy into a lot of this stuff. But New Testament Christianity is about how we connect together at uh, a local level as the fellowship of believers. Do you know, in a way, it's very easy to love a distant Jesus, 
to love a Jesus who's in the New Testament and to love a Jesus who's up in heaven and to love a Jesus who's a Jesus of our own imagination where it's really hard is to love Jesus in his people. We find that incredibly difficult. And yet Christ builds his church. There, there are, of course, many, many things that are wrong with the church. And we would need to define what we mean by church. And we need to talk about what is involved. But again, I would say this. I would say this to anyone who is a new student coming to the, the city. Get connected with a good Bible teaching church. I would say this not just to students, but to anybody. It is hugely vital in a hostile culture that you are part of the family of the church. And that at a practical level. Not at the level of, well, I believe in Jesus and I'm part of the worldwide church of God and so on. Which is true, but we need to be connected together. It's not all rosy though, because at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 5, there's the extraordinary story of Ananias and Sapphira. A couple who were hypocrites when it came to money. People were selling their property and they were giving it to the apostles to share amongst the poor and so on. And a man called Ananias came with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself. He was asked, is this, a, is this it all? And he said, yes. And um, he was struck dead because he lied to the Holy Spirit. And his wife came in and the same thing happened. And we're told that after these events, great fear seized the church and all who heard about it. They had pretended to give more than they really had. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And they died. It was an ex- it's an extraordinary story. And one, I think, we should take on board. Because God wants us in his church. But one of the things that the Lord Jesus, I think the thing he hates more than anything, maybe pride and his sister, hypocrisy. It's so easy for us to be hypocritical. It's really hard for us to be open and honest. It's really hard for us Uh, Not to pretend, not to put on a mask, not to put on a face. But in the church of Jesus Christ, we should be able to do that. It's It's an irony, an irony of ironies that in so many churches, we are so tempted just to pretend. I think that in the church of Jesus Christ, it should be the case that we are able to be honest, that we are able to... uh, Cry out when we doubt and when we fear and when we hurt and when we are wounded. The church will continue. And that third lesson is just beware of hypocrisy within the church and within ourselves. I've seen so much of it and I include myself in that category. Of course, the great thing is we serve a God who forgives. I don't know how many times I've woken up in the morning with the words of lamentations, great is your faithfulness, your mercy is new every morning. The full message of the new life is not something that you just get when you become a Christian. It's something that you have all the time. We need to take sin seriously and then we can take grace and forgiveness seriously. It's when we cheapen sin that what happens is we then cheapen grace and we become trite and trivial. I like humor. I can't help humor. I like um, us being able to laugh and being able to enjoy ourselves. What I test is trivia. Absolutely, just the, the way that 
we um, turn the word of God into some kind of joke, which is just really, really wrong. Fourth thing is this. One of the things I've learned, very straightforward, that there's persecution from outside. That's what happens. Here, one man puts it, there was the deepening jealousy and antagonism of the Sadducees, the moderation of the Pharisees, and the deepening joy and confidence of the Christians. Whenever God is at work, we can expect fierce opposition. When I first began in the ministry, my view was and my experience was that the vast majority of people were apathetic. They couldn't care less. I now no longer believe that. I've been taught a lesson. I believe that apathy only occurs when the church is apathetic. But when we proclaim the gospel, when we care, when we love the poor, when we are doing what we're supposed to be doing biblically, when we serve God, there are signs and wonders and miracles. And when the Lord is present in power, the opposition is stirred up and it is often fierce. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And yet, they were put into prison. Verse 14, we read this. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the number. That's the fifth lesson. When God is at work, there is persecution. But when God is at work, it means that people come to believe. The presence of the living God means that some are frightened away. Look at uh, verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. You know, Christians will often say, I wish that the power of the Lord was present. You know what happens? Sometimes when that happens, people walk away. It's not that they all go, oh, wow, I want to become a Christian. It's people get really scared. I remember um, in Brora, in my first church, there was a, a man came in. And he was a bit nervous about coming in and he sat down and after the service he left and sweat was pouring off him and he was really scared and he was really angry. And he shouted at me as he went out the door, you only come to my house so that you can find out information about me so you can preach about me. And I went, I didn't even know you were going to be here. That's not what I do. And he said, this is freaky. And he just, he ran, he literally ran down the street. And my old, one of my old elders, it was an old man called Rod McKenzie, who could hardly walk, shouted at the top of his voice, you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> oh, Rod. <laughs> but it was true. It's true. When God begins to work, it really scares some people. It really scares some people. And sometimes it scares some Christians because they're praying and God answers their prayer and they go, whoa, wait, we didn't expect that. We didn't expect God to answer. But I'll tell you what happens is, you'll get persecution, but people come to believe. We need to expect conversion growth. Verse 16, we read, Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. A really important lesson. The power of God heals and frees human beings. And I don't think of it, again, in terms of the trivial I think in terms of everything, when I see how sick our society is, when I see the distress and trouble that so many people are in, I wonder what can be done. And what can be done is this, and the the Christian church needs to grasp this again and again and again and again. The greatest need is for people to know the gospel. Most people won't say that. They'll say, my greatest need is that I get a husband. My greatest need is that I get more money. My greatest need is that I get healed. My greatest need is for world peace or whatever. 
But the greatest need that any single person has and that any single community has is that the Holy Spirit works in their lives. The song ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me, his praise should sing. Anything that we do for people is, real, is good. Healing people, caring for people, providing food for people, providing shelter, all these different things, providing friendship. It's all really, really good. But it's all just putting a sticking plaster on a festering sore unless they are healed from within, unless they come to know Jesus Christ. It's been my privilege, just such an enormous privilege, to be able to see and to witness people who've become believers. And not just kind of, you know, one week they're a Christian, next week they're not. I'm talking about people whom God has plucked, whom God has changed. Uh, I think of a lady up in Brora, the first time I saw her was in a hospital in Glasgow with 14 tubes sticking out of her. No point saying anything to her. She, she won't hear you. She wasn't a believer. Her husband wasn't a believer. And prayed at the bedside, going away thinking I'd never see her again. She came home and uh, she recovered. Amazingly, she recovered. She came to church despite opposition from neighbors. You know, you can't go to that church. They're weird. They don't use music and all that kind of stuff. That was... And she came. She said, I'm going to come for six weeks. When she went out, she went to her neighbor and she said, I'm not going for six weeks. And the neighbor kind of said, I told you so. She said, no, no, I'm going for life. I'm going for life. Because God had worked through his word in her life and she's still a believer and still following the Lord. Somebody like my friend Richard who was converted through the Richard Dawkins website, which is an astonishing, an atheist, Another lady, a Jehovah's Witness lady, who argued black and blue about hell and the Trinity and everything else. And then one Sunday evening was sitting in church and something happened. I saw a physical change in her appearance. I asked her later what it was. She said it was the Holy Spirit. She became a believer. There are several of you here, all of us, I hope, who are believers, absolutely, that God has intervened in our life in different ways. It may be, as we were listening to people saying why they wanted to become members and how they were Christians, some would say, I can't remember when I didn't believe. That's a miracle. That's fantastic. And there are other people who can tell you, on the 4th of August, 1979, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, in this place, I came to believe in Jesus. That's fantastic, too. It's amazing how God works in different places and in different people. And the important thing about that is it is the power of God, not the power of the church, not the power of anyone else. I, uh, the Baptist minister, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was walking along with a friend who wasn't a Christian and he saw a drunk man lying in the gutter and Spurgeon's friend said to him, isn't that one of your converts? And Spurgeon said, yeah, it must be. Because it's certainly not one of the Lord's. That's what happens. If we try and do things in our own strength. Richard Morgan, my atheist friend from the Dawkins website, in his testimony, he says this. I realized it was not the words of David Robertson that made the difference. It was the word of the Lord. That's always got to be the case. They preach God's word. And miracles happen. And we've got to expect that today. Lesson seven, very simple. We are to go. He said, go stand in the temple courts. There's no point in standing still. 
There's no point in seeking to maintain just what we have. There's no point in hiding away. We are to give it away. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. And it is utterly astounding and utterly to our shame that the church in Scotland has largely forgotten this whole purpose about going. We try and tell people to come to us because of how nice and how attractive and so on we are. We have to go to people with the good news of the gospel. And that is an increasing burden that I feel as I go on. Lesson eight, stand in the temple courts and tell the people. We have to tell the gospel to people who are religious. We have to tell the gospel to people who are in the church. We give far too much respect to religion. Our church is filled with functional atheists. Many of churches are. People who may believe that there's a God, but who live their lives as if there were none. And maybe some of you are like that. You come to church, you listen, you go away. What possible difference does it make you being here? And you really seriously have to think about that. And I know in my own life and in my own experience how easy it is to get into a routine that goes da 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 And if you took the Holy Spirit away and you took God away, the routine continues. da 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 It's not right. We have to be preach the gospel to. I remember we began in this church, in our fellowship groups, to look at Tim Keller's studies on Mark, what is a Christian? And I know that some of you, because you told me, you said, we don't need that. We know what a Christian is. And as you did those studies, for some of you, your minds were blown and your hearts were really challenged because you thought, am I really a Christian? I didn't realize there was so much in this. I need to preach the gospel every day to myself. And sometimes I think, 25 years a minister, 30 odd years a Christian, And sometimes I think, I hardly know it. I hardly know it. The gospel is far deeper and far more wonderful and far more powerful than I ever contemplated. And yet, how many people come to church and they sit in church as though they were judges on the X factor? Thinking, right, let's see if this is a good sermon or this is a good praise or if that guy's sound about God. You know, there are some of you who, if the Apostle Paul were here or if Jesus were here, you'd say, wait a minute, I'm not sure that that's sound, that that fits in. We need to come with a lot more humility. All of us, I include myself in that. On the other hand, there are people in our churches, and you may be someone like this, and you come here and you are broken, bruised, battered, and you need to find a savior. My sister was in a church recently and did everything that she could to try and be welcomed. You know, stand around looking lost, burst into tears, I don't know anything. You know, and... In that church, great teaching. Praise was okay. Great teaching. Virtually nobody spoke to her. Now, if you weren't a Christian, what were you going to think? You're going to think, these people don't really mean it. If you're here and you're a visitor and nobody here speaks to you and you want them to speak to you, then you do have a right to complain. Just go and complain to someone else. No, come and complain to me. Let me know. Speak to us. Share. It's important. Robert Murray McShane in case you don't know the former pastor of this church, when his brother died, the most affecting letter you will ever read of his life is how he describes when his brother died that though he was in a church and was in a religious community and though they taught the gospel, he said, there was nobody to tell me about Jesus. Nobody. Nobody brought Christ to me. We are to tell the gospel in the church and we are to tell the people 
the full message of this new life. The gospel must not be reduced to a formula. It is about a person, Jesus Christ, the divine human being. But that must never be reduced to a cliche. We must know the full message if we know the full Christ. And that takes dedication, commitment, and love. That's why you will get Christians who walk around with their hands in their pockets going, yeah, I know Jesus, I know Jesus. And you get the Apostle Paul saying, I want to know Jesus. There's a fundamental difference. There's an arrogance that comes from, yeah, I know Jesus, I know Jesus. And an Apostle saying, I long to know Jesus. I long to know him better. Why? Because to know him is to love him. And to know him is to be able to share him. There are far too many of us who are at ease in Zion. We observe, we analyze, we judge, but we ourselves do not grow in knowledge. Because this is a fantastic message. It's a message of new life. It's an extraordinary and wonderful message. There is a savior for you. No matter what you have done in the past, there is a savior for you. No matter where you have come from, what your background, what your ethnicity, what your sexuality, no matter what, there is a savior for you. There is healing, there is forgiveness, there is new life, there is new birth. What there is not is continue in your old life and just have it jazzed up a wee bit. It's a new life, completely new. All that the world offers is nothing compared with what Christ is and what Christ offers himself. The most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen in the ministry has not been people who have died, but people who have wandered away spiritually and have sold their birthright for rubbish. It's astounding that people will sometimes almost deliberately, sometimes very deliberately actually, choose a relationship or money or a particular idol rather than Jesus Christ. They retain the, um, how will I put it, the, the shell of religion, but they lose the heart of Christ. And we have to go to people and we have to say, there is new life. We tell the people the full message of this new life. Uh, this evening I'll say something more about that. Lesson 10, keep going. They did what they were told. Go stand in the temple courts. What happened? Verse 21, at daybreak they entered the temple courts. As soon as it got dawn, they went straight in there. And what did they do? And they began to teach the people. There is a right kind of Christian stubbornness. We don't want to become weary in well-doing. We don't shut up. We don't just let things go. We don't stop. In the 1970s, there's a, I, I once painted a piggery, believe it or not, with creosote. It took me six weeks. And I had a radio that I was listening to. And there's an album that was on all the time, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. And there's a song in that, Don't Stop. And I think that's kind of the message. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Don't stop, it'll soon be here. Yesterday's gone. Keep going. Keep on keeping on. Some of you as Christians are worn and weary and tired and battered and struggling. You might be, but the gospel is still the same and you keep going. Never let go of the gospel. I met a minister once who said to me, David, I don't think the future is with my church. He said, we've given up on the gospel. And he himself admitted within himself that he'd given up. And it was the most desperately sad situation. Don't never ever give up on the gospel. Lesson 11, and there's only 12, so just two more. God is sovereign. They were persecuted. They were about to be killed. God intervened. 
A Pharisee called Gamaliel stopped them being killed, had them flogged, but stopped them being killed. And they rejoice. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. If there was ever a verse for today's culture, it is simply this. We must obey God rather than men. I have very, very good friends in the Church of Scotland uh, who are ministers, two of whom have preached here. Um, and I was speaking to one fairly recently, and he's basically been told, you shut up, you don't say anything. There's a moratorium on speaking. You must obey men rather than God. That's what we have to do. We, we have no option but to continue to proclaim the gospel. Don't say this. I don't know how many times people have said, don't say it, or say it in your own thing, or keep it quiet. No, God is sovereign, and we may be persecuted. We may experience great blessing. Who knows? But we leave it in God's hands. And then verse 41 and 42, look at the fantastic uh, ending of all of that. They left the Sanhedrin after they'd been flogged. They'd been whipped. They were bleeding. They were in agony. They, they, were, they had the civil authorities and the religious authorities against them. And they leave the Sanhedrin, having been told never to speak in the name of Jesus again. And they rejoice because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And in day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. I think the lesson there is simple. Following Jesus Christ is a life of joy. They rejoiced that they had come to believe in Jesus. They rejoiced as they spoke boldly. They didn't speak full of fear. They didn't speak attacking and condemning people. They just rejoiced. They rejoiced when people believed, and they rejoiced when people beat them up because they believed. They knew Jesus Christ in such a way that even being abused and beaten for that knowledge, for that faith, caused them just simply to increase it. We need to get back some of that joy. Where is the strength of the church? The joy of the Lord is our strength. That does not mean, it really does not mean that we're just happy in church. That's not what the joy of the Lord is. The joy of the Lord is that which enables you to take a beating and keep going. I have a wee correspondence just now with somebody who's saying that we must get everyone to confess Jesus by writing on Facebook, I believe in Jesus. And they quote the verse, whoever confesses me before men and so on. And I said to them, that's not what Jesus means. That's, confessing Jesus is not putting on a Jesus t-shirt or a, a message on Facebook. Confessing Jesus is in our whole lives with our neighbors and families and friends when we acknowledge that we love and we serve and we follow Jesus Christ. That commission, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life, is not a commission that is just for the apostles. It's not a commission, it's just for those of us who are called to public proclamation of God's word in a pulpit. It is a commission for the whole church because the people need to hear. They need to hear it, especially in the religious places. And as we'll see this evening, they also need to hear it in the marketplace and we'll look a little bit at uh, what that involves. But may God bless his word to us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. 
That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.